Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Black Woman's Hour. Um, today we're going to be speaking a bit about the Dalian Atkinson uh, case, which everyone heard of. And for the first time since 1968, it wasn't the police weren't found guilty of murder of a black man, they were found guilty of manslaughter. So we have some really great guests on to discuss it. We have Sabi, Sabi Dalu, Sabi from Stand Up To Racism, how are you doing? Good, thank you. Did you follow the case? I imagine you did. I did, yes. And you've worked with United Friends and Family, haven't you, over the years? Yes, we have, obviously, deaths in custody um, and the targeting of um, particularly African-Caribbean, but also Asian people um, it is, is a big part of anti-racist work. It's not something unique to the US, you know, George Floyd, you know, is definitely not the only person who's been, you know, killed by police and it's a big issue here. Yeah. And Ross, you were at the trial, weren't you? Every single day you covered yes, it. Yes, I sat through all of it. Yes, um, it was a, a. I mean, it was a, a, a. It was an extraordinary case. It went on for seven weeks. I think it went into eight weeks in the end. Um, and yeah, it was nerve nerve wracking. Wondering whether the jury would be able to see through this defence that PC Monk put up for his actions. Yeah, I'll talk to you a bit about what the atmosphere and stuff was like. And we have Janet Older, who um, you lost your brother Christopher to police. Uh, he died in custody, not died, sorry, he was killed in custody. Um, did you follow the case and how did you feel when the verdict came in? Yeah, I mean, I, I did follow the case, um, going through something very, very similar. I did um, try to compare the way that the CPS was put in that case and the way that the Christopher's case. Um, but any victory for us, you know, as United Families and Friends and people that have lost people in police custody is a victory. Um, but there's just so many similarities and tactics that they use, um, you know, to describe your loved one and whatsoever. So, you know, that's that. it, it takes you through it again. It's, you know what I mean? It's, it's horrific the way that they speak about this person that's not there to speak for themselves. Yeah, yeah. So Ross, can you just tell us what the atmosphere was like in court for that case? Like, uh, did it have like a regular crowd of people that came? Did you see the same faces every day? Well, it was different from any case I've done before because of the COVID restrictions. So there, there was a lot of, there was quite a lot of media, media interest, but the vast majority of the media were watching it on a screen at home uh, as, as opposed to going into the court they only had room for a couple of journalists because they wanted to let family members of the accused and of dalian into the court so they would it, it was different from that point of view it certainly saved a lot on parking fees um because you could sit in your kitchen and watch it but the atmosphere it's i mean the atmosphere itself um, you know, you, you you just had you had the characters of the court. You had the defence barrister for PC Monk, and you had the prosecution barrister. Um, they were both sort of they both sounded sort of Oxford educated types, um, and it turned into a battle between them in a sense. Um, one of the most striking things was the fact that race was not mentioned once. Uh, throughout the whole seven weeks 
I had, um, yeah, I'd read about that and read that race wasn't mentioned. And I'd read that that was a deliberate tactic on behalf of um, the prosecutor because every single time they've tried to say, okay, this was a black man that was killed. It then, I mean, you only have to see the footballers, for example, we've got a football match on tonight. You only have to see them take the knee and just see as soon as you try and challenge racism, the pushback that you get, the anger that you get. So did you feel that was a good tactic or not? I think personally, I kind of am in two minds about it because I kind of think, well, why shouldn't you say? If racism is the, is one of the, the contributing factors, why should we have to sort of downgrade our, you know, our race in order to be seen as more human? It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I mean, uh, Janet, how do you feel about that? Do you think if race wasn't mentioned in your brother's case that it would be more successful? Well, as I say, I mean, it, the, the way the CPS prosecuted Christopher's case, they prosecuted it in a way where it would never, ever, ever, ever have been successful. Um, one of the elements for um, misconduct in a public office was that um, did the officers know that Christopher was in the condition that he was in, which they did because they said when he comes round and we find out who he is, that's one element. One of the other elements was um, whether th th their actions were done with malice. Yeah. Now it was found on the CCTV footage uh, within the trial that there was officers making monkey and chimpanzee noises and references to banana boats. And um, this wasn't put in the trial, and this was done tactically by the CPS because that would have showed malice, and that would have proved the case of misconduct in a public office. Yeah, yeah. Sabi, did you? What do you think about the leaving out of race when it comes to these cases? Well, I think it's frustrating that the prosecution felt they had to deploy that tactic in order to get a result so you know i think it is a problem you know to to not discuss um, racism but then on the other hand i think we have to acknowledge that this is actually quite a big victory you know for the anti-racist movement here um because um ava mentioned it in the introduction this is the first time in um over 30 years that you've had a police officer that's um, been convicted um, for um, manslaughter, but it's actually the first time you've ever had a police officer convicted for killing a black person. So this is actually a historic judgment. So that's really important. And it could be that, I mean, I don't know what evidence there was that actually, like with Janet Alders, uh, with Christopher Alders case, as Janet just mentioned, you know, she said that there were recordings of police officers using such um, um, overtly racist language. If that wasn't the case with this police officer, that doesn't mean it wasn't racism, but it might be difficult to prove that in a court of law. So I, 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 I'm, I have mixed views about it. On the, one, on the one hand, I think in the general context of the way police officers treat black people, it's difficult. You can't really remove racism, you know, from... Um, this case, but then on the other hand, um, if um, if there wasn't any um, 
um, overt evidence of it. I mean, I don't know, you know, what 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 they said um, at the time, uh, because that's not really been sort of you know picked up very much. Um, and I think the most significant thing is that you know he has actually been convicted of manslaughter um, because it's a historic moment, and I think the movement needs to build on this. We need to be saying that um, you know this can't happen again, and any police officer that does um, take such action against black people, then they will also. Um, be face prosecution and be convicted for this sort of thing. And I think we need to be pushing for um, uh, police officers um, in you know previous cases of um, death in police custody um, to to be to face prosecution because that's the big problem here. You know, whereas in the US you've had um, you know not just Derek Chauvin but other police officers have been convicted um, for um, murder or second degree murder. But here, you didn't have that. And this is the first time you've actually got that. So I think we need to actually build on this. Yeah. Ross, was there any mention, you know, you said the CPS didn't mention race. Did the defendant or did anyone else mention it at all? No, it wasn't. Did you, did you it say, wasn't. I'm not racist, but nothing like that? No, I sort of, but you kind of thought when PC Monk got into the witness box that his defence barrister might have asked that question just to sort of clear it up just so pc monk could say no no that, that was not a factor at all but he didn't go there and he the reason he didn't go there i would imagine is because he knew the prosecution weren't going to go there and savvy is right that the reason for it is that there wasn't unlike in christopher's case there was no nothing overt to suggest that race had played a part um, what you had was PC Monk's description of Daly and Atkinson, which was very vivid and racial. It, uh, people would have read it in a ra as racism, perhaps. And I think the judgment of the prosecutors was that in 2021, you've got a jury of 12 people those who are going to pick up on that are going to pick up on it and if you're, they're not going to pick up on it they're going to probably be resistant to it being pointed out to them um i think the the more what was i found more frustrating about the case uh from the way it was prosecuted was the fact that and it was for good reasons because as everybody said this is a historic case the prosecution have done a fantastic job they've got finally a police officer convicted of manslaughter it's an amazing achievement but in order to do that they focused in solely on the last 45 seconds to a minute of their interaction with dalian on the night so there was five minutes in total that the officers were at the scene and they accepted that for the first four minutes the officers acted entirely appropriately that's problematic because the actual evidence that they had was that the officers because it was not only this case got prosecuted because there were 11 eyewitnesses in this little cul-de-sac in telford who had been looking out of their windows and seeing what was going on that's one reason and two they had timings of everything so they knew exactly to the second when the police arrived and they knew to the second when PC Monk first 
shot his taser at Mr. Atkinson. And that gap between arrival and the first taser shooting was 55 seconds, which, you know, I mean, they hadn't been, the 999 call is crucial. They hadn't been called to somebody saying there is a man with a knife trying to get into a house, a man with a gun trying to get into a house. It was, uh, I'm worried about an 80 something year old man. Uh, someone is trying to get into his house. I think it's one of his sons. That's the, it was a, they were called to a domestic incident and within 55 seconds of arrival, they were firing a taser at this man and this was all accepted as sort of, that's, that's fine. That I found difficult because and then obviously it emerged that Mr. Atkinson was in a, he was having a, a psychotic episode, something which he'd never experienced before and was caused by the kidneys, his failing kidneys and the chemicals in his system. But the in the court case, the fact that the police you know, the, the, they sort of used his mental condition as a justification for the violence they used against him. And I think that's what comes across in a lot of previous cases where they've encountered with a mental health problem. Definitely in the case of Roger Sylvester, I remember that um, very clearly. And it's also, you know, what struck me, what you said, the description. Can you just tell me, do you remember what the description Officer Monk gave of? Um, yes, he said he, he came to the door. He said that Dalian was the biggest man, the biggest man he'd, the biggest and strongest and fittest man he'd ever seen. He said his shoulders filled the entire doorway. But then he said he came out of the house and his face was one of pure anger and his eyes were bulging. He started baring his teeth and declaring himself to be the messiah um it was a, it, it was a, it was an extraordinary thing because he he in his defense monk had monk had given his statement to the police describing what happened and and the police he went on for nine pages of police notes was what how monk described 55 seconds i mean he it was he tried to calm the situation he tried but you know that that was never challenged as to sort of how could that be True. But they got it right because I mean they were focusing on the, the yeah. what actually killed Dalian Atkinson, which was the uh, taser and the kicks to the head. And they didn't want it anything to distract from that. Thing, isn't it? It's it's terrifying the way that black people are described. Because if I'm not Dalian was five foot eight, wasn't he? Uh, Dalian was five foot eleven, and um, and a PC Monk was six foot. So PC Monk was a, a foot taller. Um, the colleague who was with PC Monk on the night said Dalian was at least six foot four in her statement. I mean, they kind of it, it's sort of like they the the police. This has worked for the police so many times in the past. These yeah. sort of descriptions uh, in order to justify how they how they reacted. But the bottom line was, this was a man, an unarmed man. And it was scary because, I mean, if it's something going wrong in his body and it's his kidneys and it's giving him a sign, no one can help that, you know? It just is, the, the guy's, he's so vulnerable and stuff. So you can't help, that could happen to absolutely anybody. And that's what's so terrifying and the most about. heartbreaking, The most heartbreaking moment of the case was when um, the lady who lived next door to Dalian, and remember this was where Dalian had been 
brought up. This was his childhood home. This is where he'd learned to kick a football. And there was a Caribbean lady who lived next door who came to give evidence and she'd been traumatized by what she had seen. But the most, what struck me was that she said that, because I didn't recognize Daly, but if I'd have known it was him, I'd have gone out there onto the streets and put my arms around him and calmed him down because that's what needed to happen. And, you know, that was um, very, very powerful. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Janet, it must be, I mean, didn't even say sorry for your loss. I'm incredibly sorry for your loss. Um, I know how painful it is to lose a close family member. And, um, you know, I know there's certain things that trigger me when I, you know, because I lost a daughter. So there's certain things that trigger me, certain things I hear. How, how must you feel? I mean, last year, 2020, was a year where the George Floyd murder, I didn't watch it. I can't watch things like that. Um, but I mean, even if you didn't watch it, just hearing about it, I mean, how are you, how are you doing? How, do you, how, do you, how did you feel with that? And did it feel different having it in this country again? Something else happening, because obviously Christopher was a British case. Do you feel any differently when you hear it happening in America? Than you do here? Not at all. I mean, I, I, I was watching TV, you know, you know, and expected for it to come on and whatsoever. And um, you know, when I saw what happened to George Floyd, the, you know, the callous way and the, and the carefree way that the officer murdered him, um, of course, it triggers things back. And going back to, um, ha you know, um, the, pl the police in this country, do have in a clause that if they feel their life is threatened or their colleagues are threatened, they can kill you. So this is why they build up this big, massive, big persona of um, the people that they actually, you know, the black men that they kill. Um, and it happens in every single mm. case. They have to build up this monstrosity, this monster to justify their actions. Now, what we've not got to forget is the McPherson's report. Yeah, um, Lord McPherson had turned around and said, um, racism, is is the perception of the people that do you know what I mean around other people that is happening to, and he basically um, spoke about the demonization of black men, yeah, and the stereotyping of black men, which is used in every single one of these cases. Do you know what I mean? He was big, he was this, he was threatening, he was this, and that is all done to justify the police officers' actions, yeah. Um, so as you can imagine, when I come out in Damien's, when I've heard it in, in Roger Sylvester's, in Sean Wiggs' case, and the whole lot of these cases, do you know what I mean? It's the same tactics that are used time and time again. Now, they don't demonise the actual police officers. I mean, I read the summing up or the, um, the summing up of the, not the summing up, the um, sentencing of the officer in, in the in the Daly and Atkinson's case. And, 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 the, and the judge still went on about, do you know what I mean, how aggressive he was and this, that and the other. The other, the other thing that we've not got to forget is this guy was in a crisis, yeah? You should be able to dis differentiate when somebody's in a, 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 a crisis and somebody who is just being outwardly aggressive, but they don't. They keep it all intermingled in to justify their actions. Same as Christopher's case, do you know what I mean? They justified him being in the hospital as a big, aggressive black guy rather than somebody that had been assaulted outside of a nightclub. And this is what we've not to, we've not got to forget. We've got not we've not to forget 
that McPherson did say the stereotyping of black people, the way that they're doing this, is racism. Yeah, it's absolutely racism, 100%. I mean, we hear it all the time. I used to work in a prison service, and I just wonder what happened some days if I hadn't been there, because it's just like, you know, they'd be like, look at that guy, he's being aggressive, he's, he's being rude, you know, he's so loud. And I was like, he's Jamaican, like, relax. He's not doing anything. I remember them saying, you know, just looking at this guy one day again, he's crazy. He's crazy. Look at him. He's mad. He's, I mean, he needs a haircut. I was like, mate, please, bro, cut your hair. Because, yeah, they do. They do. And I mean, I'm absolutely, I'm a 5'11 black woman. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. They do it I hear it a lot. I'm I'm aggressive. I'm angry. I'm rude. All black women are angry, obviously. Um, so we hear that definitely. Yeah. I mean, in terms of um, from last year to this, do you think the George Floyd case, do you think that this case, that he, he would have been found guilty if the George Floyd case being so high profile wasn't in the back of everyone's mind? What do you think, Sabi? Good, very good question. Yeah, <laughs> very good question. Well, I, I think it did have an impact because I think that it was such a big movement. And I think we have to give credit to the woman that actually filmed the police officer. I know it's very distressing to watch, but we have to very give credit to that woman because were, was it not for that footage of her actually showing what happened, the police would have just covered it up because they, they actually lied in the very first police report after they killed George Floyd. They actually said that they took him to the... Um, that that um, they said he'd, he'd gone to the hospital and they tried to uh, revive him uh, and then he died at hospital. That That's what the police re report said. Um, so so they had to actually, you know, um, erase that report because obviously the, the footage um, totally uh, contradicted that. And then simultaneously, because of the footage, I'm guessing, and the sort of context of COVID and black people being disproportionately impacted by it, you know, dying disproportionately, um, getting infected and getting ill disproportionately compared to white people, and also suffering disproportionately from the economic impact that, you know, just created this cocktail, which just, you know, led to this, you know, really powerful movement of people, um, not just in the US, but it obviously, as we know, it inspired a global movement. So I think that the, you know, the whole global movement of Black Lives Matter probably did have an impact on achieving um, this verdict, because I think it would have had an impact on the way, you know, the judiciary actually um, views such cases and and what the public would deem, you know, reasonable or unreasonable. So in my opinion, I think it's likely given the timing of it. I mean, it's only like just over a year on from when George Floyd was killed. Um, so I think it probably did have a, a, a big impact. But I think on the actual case itself, I mean, I think it does show, you know, people have sort of here have discussed it, you know, I think the common theme of a lot of death in police custody, in addition to racism, is, is the, the treatment of black people with mental health problems. I mean, they're just, you know, completely dehumanized and they're treated as though they're criminals. So I think we do need to actually campaign for um, a, a better mental health provision, but also um, 
uh, the way raise awareness about the way black people are treated and they're just met with racism when they actually you know when, when they actually you know when it appears that they actually have a problem instead of being helped and supported um we need to look at the use of taser because obviously you know it it, it kills people so it's a very dangerous weapon so i think you know police officers should stop you know using taser unless it's i mean clearly you know dalian atkinson wasn't armed i think if someone's armed you know and they're about to uh, you know, attack a police officer, then you might, you know, um, say that, you know, taser is a legitimate, you know, um, course of action. But in a situation where someone's got clearly got mental health problems, I mean, even by the police officer's own description, oh, he's talking about how he's the messiah. Well, obviously, um, he's got, you know, mental health issues, you know, if, you know, he's saying things like that. So anyway, so, you know, that we do need to look at the use of taser and actually campaign, you know, against uh, the use of that um, unless, you know, someone is armed and actually pose an, poses an immediate threat. But I think fundamentally um, we need to, uh, it, the, it, we need to actually campaign against, you know, racism and not just in the police force, but in society as a whole, because we, the big problem in society is just the total criminalization of the black community, the way they're stopped and searched, the way they're treated in police custody, that, you know, you just, whatever you do, you're treated like a criminal. This has got to stop. And I think Janet, you know, touched on a very important point, which is the, you know, McPherson report. That was a very landmark, you know, inquiry into the Stephen Lawrence case, which didn't just look at that case individually, but just looked at, you know, society as a whole which coined the phrase institutional racism and it's very important that we don't let the government pursue its propaganda campaign of you know denying that actually you know institutional racism is a factor in you know the disproportionate impact of you know that black community face whether it's in education employment um uh health and you know and in policing um, so, you know, that's that so-called Sewell report, the Commission um, into Racial um, and Ethnic Disparities, you know, it's important that actually we, we, we speak out against that narrative. Yeah, I mean, Janet, I thought at the beginning you were shaking your head a little bit. Did you think that the George Floyd um, case impacted Dalian's case at all? Most definitely, because, do you know what I mean? You have thousands and thousands of people in the streets, uh, black, white, and, you know what I mean, brown, do you know, and, you know, all colours out there, do you know, protesting, and it was happening in every town and city in, in Britain, you know what I mean? Even in the Orkneys, you know what I mean? There were people out there with banners and whatsoever. So that has a massive, massive impact to, um, to how, the, you know, they, they actually track with this case. And I think... People were going around and saying, you know, the UK is not innocent. Yeah. So the, the, the state recognised that um, that people were aware that police officers and plus it regurgitated a lot of our cases. Do you know what I mean? Like my own and many others. So people were seeing all these uh, these other cases again and asking questions. So I think what had actually happened, it was uh, because I honestly believe that we, the UK takes a lot off of what actually happened in America, you know, policies and procedures and things like that. And I think it was just one of those, let us just show, you know, let us show her 
let, let's show the people, you know, it happened there. We have to do it here type of thing. Um, so I think the ordinary people on the street getting out, out there, protesting, recognising the emotional intelligence of what everybody has, I think it had a massive impact on the criminal justice system. And I just want to say one thing. The, the, you know, black people are not stupid. You know, we're disproportionately um, imprisoned. We're disproportionately die in police custody. We disproportionately die at childbirth. You know, there's so many things there, do you know what I mean, that are happening, that black people are really, really asking serious, logical questions about what's going on, whether it be the COVID or whatever. Do you know, there's no trust, you know, there's no wonder they've got no trust in the vaccines and this, that, because we know exactly what has happened to us in the past and it's still happening. Yeah, 100%. I agree. Um, Ross, you've covered some other cases, um, similar types of cases. Did you find that this one was different? Yeah, I, I think I, I agree with what's been said about the impact of last year's Black Lives Matter movement, um, because um, I, I'm sure that that's probably one of the reasons why they, maybe why they didn't mention race, because perhaps they felt that that would be at the back of a lot of the jurors' minds. Um, and, you know, I, I agree with what's been said. It's also a reason why, from somebody who works in newspapers, it was it was quite frustrating because, obviously, since the Black Lives Matter movement and the fact that it did energise so many people in this country, there's been a huge backlash against it from the right-wing media in this country who, who now write about race more than anything. Um, how I mean, how does it feel? Because obviously, um, as I spoke, Janet, Janet feels it on a very personal level. Um, all black people feel it. And I asked kind of the question because we have covered it on this show before and people have often said something about, you know, oh, how come, uh, what's it going to do with you lot over here if someone over in America is killed? I mean, you, you feel it because you know it could be you. You know it could be your family member. A lot of us who come from the Caribbean anyway, or African countries, loads of us in the diaspora, our families went two ways, mainly America or here, a few to Canada. So we are going to feel it. But how do you feel as a white man, because you've covered these cases before and you've covered them for the Caribbean Times, am I right? Yeah, yeah. How do you feel when you see it? Well... It's um, the cases I covered was this was when I worked for the Caribbean Times, this was back in the 1990s. Um, and it's interesting that the same police tactics we, were used in those cases, as has been said, they always make the black man seem far scarier. They, they, they create a monster, as Janet has, has rightly said. Um, <sighs> I think it's you just feel that the, this country has got such a long way to go because we are sort of experts at saying this has got nothing to do with us um, because you know we've all of our crimes against black people have mostly taken place a long way away from Britain. There's always been that distance between it, um, and it's. Um, 
you know, they, it, it's very frustrating to see the way in which these things are reported in this country as a white person, because you, you can see the impact it has on other white people. Um, and and, and you, you, you can see how, the, how they sort of use press reports to justify their own behavior and, and their own prejudices. Um, so it, 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 it's very frustrating. Does it feel, does it change the way you interact with black people on a daily basis or day-to-day -day basis? If you were to see like my son, for instance, walking down the street of six foot two, young black man, he plays rugby, so he's very muscly, or, you know, would you, does it stay in your brain in that way? How would you feel if you saw him? Would those descriptions of black men that police give be running through your head? Um, I, they probably, they probably would. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm fortunate in the sense that I've uh, got half of my f f family since I've had relationships, and I've got a lot of black people who are very tall and stuff in my family. So perhaps I, I would be a little bit more relaxed than than some. But you, you, you can see how the stereotyping of black men, especially, can get into can get into people's heads and, and, and make them feel anxious. Right, okay. And, and do you speak to your white members of your family about the cases that you've covered? Yes. And what are their yes. reactions to it? Well, I mean, it depends which member of the family you, you talk to them about, really. I mean, I wouldn't talk to all of them about it. I mean, well, no, I, 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 I probably would. Yeah, I mean, um, my mum, she she's, was, is, I would talk to her about this case every single day. She was very invested in it. Uh, but the, and that's, she had a personal connection because Dalian's partner is a friend of hers who comes in and helps her with the house one, once a week. So she's known about this case and how horrific it was for many years. And we've, she's, she's been waiting for it to come around. But it has taken an awfully long time. Yeah. But, yeah. Not trying to give you a hard time, Ross. I'm just, I'm just no, no, no. These questions. Um, what I wanted to ask next is how do you think we can possibly go how, we can possibly go forward with an awful government like what we have now? I mean, this is the most right-wing government that we've had in a long, long time. I mean, I don't know about you have a government like this who are and brown people. I mean, we've covered it on this show before, but they put black and brown people in key positions, almost like to cover up how racist they are. They like to say it's to, to show how diverse they are. I mean, Priti Patel, someone who keeps getting mentioned in the show, is one of the most horrendous people that's ever been. Um, you know, Quasi Quarteng is always up there to just, you know, back up anything that's said. You know, they'll bring him out to speak about things he has no idea about. He was on Channel 4 News getting owned by um, a young grime artist whose name I can't remember. But he was absolutely getting owned because what does Quasi know about Windrush? You know, and it's just like they will indiscriminately push these people front and centre. So we're not only just facing a racist government, we're facing black and brown people at the top, top highest level um, that, that, you know, shill for white supremacy, for a better way of putting it. 
what do we do? Where do we go? Sabi, this is to you. Since you're with the Stand Up to Racism and this is, you know, you guys are yeah. constantly trying to mobilise people putting together demos. What? Well, I think you made a very good point earlier, uh, which is that um, they are putting up um, you know, black people in key positions in order to justify their racism so it's a it's a tactic of the trump government as well it was oh we're gonna be yeah. really blatantly racist and then then completely deny um that it's racism and the positioning of key black people in um senior government roles is really cynical and it's designed to basically do that to to be able to implement racism and then totally deny that it's racism and you know i think what do we do i think we just have to keep up the fight there is no um it's not a foregone conclusion that the government will win uh, i mean look at what happened it's unfortunate that they did um reasonably well in the local elections um a couple of months ago but look at the things that they had to do a u-turn on over the last year um, and look at the impact, as we've discussed, of the Black Lives Matter movement. You know, it's been enormous. You know, you've had police officers here and in the US convicted of killing black people. You've had, um, you know, a lot of coverage of the disproportionate impact of COVID. Part of the reason why they are pursuing such an aggressive racist agenda is a backlash and a response to the Black Lives Matter movement. So I think we just got to keep up the fight, keep up the campaign. Don't let these people, you know, demoralize us. You know, we have to keep up the fight. And, you know, there's no reason why in certain situations we can't win. So, um, yeah, I just think, you know, I think it's important to not lose hope and not lose heart. And just, you know, it's, it's important to... I think the key thing when it comes to anti-racism is for different communities to unite together, support one another and get support from, you know, people in the trade union movement and others. And um, we just have to, <coughs> excuse me, we just have to unite and fight against, you know, all forms of racism. Well, how is the new bill that's just been passed? It passed after the third reading, the police and crime bill, it passed, um, 365 uh, to 265 no's. And one of the core things about that bill, I mean, I agree with what you're saying about unity and stuff because it impacted so many different people. I mean, it impacts um, sexual, assault, sexual assault rape victims. It impacts terribly the GRC community. But one of the things it does uh, impact is our right to protest. And I've seen you over the years and I've seen you on demos and been on demos with you and been on United Friends and Family demos. And we did the Trayvon Martin demo um, when we were trying to draw the link between, you know, the parallels between what's going on over there and what goes on over here. I mean, what are we going to do now? <laughs> we can't just tweet because, I mean, tweeting is fine. But as we've realized after the 2019 election, tweets not, tweeting's not real life. What? How's that going to impact your work? Well, that's a good question. I mean, I think it's important to remember that the motivation for this policing bill came from the government, not from the police force, which is quite unusual because sometimes, you know, when the government, when previous governments have 
uh, introduce certain legislation, it's the demand that's come from policing. So let's just see what happens because it does look like, unfortunately, it's going to become law very soon. But will the police implement it? Because I just don't see how, you know, they can actually implement it. If you've got a demonstration that is so big, it's actually quite like with all the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, that would be with all those demonstrations. I mean, that took place when um, there were supposed to be lockdown restrictions, you know, last year. And but the, the, the police just, you know, couldn't do very much about it because when you have so many people mobilized on the streets, the police actually, you know, they they understand that there's too many people here. There's too much support for this. You know, we don't actually want to do anything that's actually potentially going to make it worse and put them in a difficult position. So I think actually, as with a lot of things that governments do, it, it, it might be difficult for the police to actually implement them. Because, you know, how, because some, some, it, it, the wording so vague pretty much everything could be criminalized but how's that actually going to work you know in practice so let's wait and see certainly i don't think we should back off from actually calling demonstrations or or anything of the sort um so you know i think i think it's a, it, it's one of those things that's actually quite problematic to implement it's a bit like the the laws in france that ban muslim women from wearing the niqab the full face veil i mean a lot of police officers think you know they don't want to go up to a Muslim woman and tell her to, you know, remove a bit of clothing. You know what I mean? This is not worth the hassle. <laughs> so, you know, that's what they were saying at the time. Yeah. They say, well, I, I don't, don't think we can implement this. It's just, this is really dodgy. You know, we're going to get into really difficult, you know, altercations with, you know, Muslim people on this one. So I think you could find something similar because, the, like I said, the police, obviously, they, there's a lot of problems with the police force, as we've discussed here. And it's sometimes in the way they police demonstrations, but the motivations for this didn't come from the police. So, so, so let's see what happens. It, I don't think, you know, um, you know, it, it should stop us from, you know, doing the sort of events and the campaigns and the demonstrations that we do. We, we've got to keep up the fight. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm a bit more cynical than you because I saw what they did at the Sarah Everard demonstration, um, and that was probably a mistake because they did it to white women but also saw what they did in Bristol as well um I kind of feel like the same as what Janet said because she said if what touching on something you said earlier and it's about reasonable suspicion or something or if you suspect and there's always that word in law reasonable and I read law and it's like the reasonable man test and they there's a lot of leeway with that and I could really see them grabbing certain people you know like okay, the next white women demonstration might be allowed to pass in peace, but the next time black kids are out there, I could see like a lot of skulls getting cracked. I mean, I find it a bit a bit terrifying in the way that, the, that we are going. I mean, what's your feelings on it, Ross? It is frightening the way things have been going. I mean, I think that we've had a, a, a strange period in the country where we had had leading up to black lives matter we'd had five years of the newspapers suddenly showing a massive interest in racism which they hadn't shown before and all for the purposes really of trying to demonize jeremy corbyn as being one of the country's leading anti-racists as being a racist so you'd had this build up and then suddenly you got hit by what happened um to uh, george floyd 
and it changed the narrative very suddenly. Um, and there's been such a kickback against it. And a lot of the laws that seem to be being drafted like this one are sort of, they seem to be sort of slightly for show. They're sort of like, you know, look look at us, we're, we're responding. And it's sort of, it, it, it's um, maybe it's a side effect of having so many journalists in government that they, 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 they're they looking for the next headline to show that they're doing something, but how it's going to work out in practice, as Sabi said, is is anyone's guess. I think they'll just, sometimes they do it for show, because, I mean, we speak about the Muslim women in France and the niqab, but I remember when they went along the beach and tried to get them out their burkinis, you know? I think there will be times that they are going to do this. I mean, it could be a side effect of having journalists in the in politics, or it could be a side effect of having a psychopath for a home secretary, because I really just don't know what is wrong with that woman at all. Um, so I, we can't, I just wish we wouldn't have to mention her, but it just seems like, you know, I don't know if we're all parents here, but you know when your child's just done something deliberately and they're looking at you while they do it and you told them don't touch something and they will stare in your face and touch it to test that boundary. That is honestly what Pretty Patel seems to be like to me. Just like a kid, like just, you know, it, it's just, she's so, she's strange. Um, Janet, I just want to move on to what's going on with you now, because um, for people that don't know your brother's story, I know you're doing a fundraiser at the moment, and we'll put the links into it, and I'll, I'll tweet those out for you as well, because it's really important what happened in your case. Do you want to explain what, what the fundraiser's about and what happened in regard to your brother's ashes? For people who don't know. Yeah, after after um, after after um, the police had murdered Christopher, and um, you know we'd had an inquest, we had an unlawful killing verdict, and we then thought it was the best time to, you know, give him the best burial that we could, and um, we got the army in, you know, got my family together, managed to get all my family together, which was being split up, you know, um, through childhood and stuff, and we really thought, you know, we'd done the best and laid Christopher to rest. Um, but it was it was really bizarre because when the day of the funeral, I got um, a bunch of red roses, you know, sent to the hotel that I was staying in anonymously. Um, and, I, you know, I just really couldn't think who they could have been from or anything. Um, so we ended up putting them on the grave, you know, which we thought Christopher was in. And then um, in 2011, I got a phone call off one of my brothers and they said, um, Janet, he said, um, we haven't buried Christopher. He's still in the mortuary. And I went, no. I said, we had a funeral. You know, we all got together. So families came from, you know, United Families and Friends and supporters came and it was a really, really good send off type thing. And um, no, he said, the police want to talk to you because they're saying that his body's still in the mortuary. And I really couldn't get my head round, you know, you know, what the, what my brother was saying. And so I said, well, I said, the police will have to come to me because I've had such a horrific, you know, time with them. Um, there's no way I was kind of welcoming them into my little bit of space that I'd been able to get over the years. And um, sure enough, I, I met them in um, Sainsbury's um, cafe. And they told me that um, Christopher's body was still in the mortuary and um, that we'd buried a 77-year-old woman. 
and I, I was just in total shock of how this could have happened. You know, you know, we, you, you're speaking about Hull. It was only 2.3% of ethnic minorities, 2.8% ethnic minorities in Hull in two, you know, in 2000 when this has happened. And they were the only two black bodies that had been in deep storage for so long. Um, and um, it, it, it can, I, I would just, once again, I knew. I knew what I would, it was going to be this, exactly the same, you know, because I'm not one of those people that can just sit back and say, well, let's just see, let's hope and let's just see what's going to happen. I can't do that. Once I've had an experience, I'm well informed about, you know, how these people deal with things. And I just basically said, well, nothing's going to come out of this. Do you not understand? Nothing is going to come out of this. And sure enough, there was an investigation. Um and they said that they didn't know how it happened. You know, it's all been an accident. And, you know, we don't know how we ended up in six body bags. Um, you know, they tried to give us some rational explanation for him being in six body bags. And, um, but, but at the same time, all those years, Christopher, they'd been using his body in the place of Grace Commander for training purposes. So, and Christopher oh was God. found in 2011 with tags on his body. Yeah. So, um, so what had happened that, you know, they, they, they've got together a civil proceedings and the council who could not deny that they'd given us the wrong body. Um, and, you know, I'd made an agreement, I think with the solicitors that I was with was, you know, let, let's compensate them for this. And um, let's just leave out those, what's happened in all those 11 years. Because it's all those 11 years that show that they knew all the time. And um, what had happened, all this was done, you know, like in closed court over the phone. I went around, I went privy to the conversations or anything. And um, I was just told by my solicitor that um, they've got release of the documents and a court order has been put on them. That if I was to say anything about what was in the documentation, there's a good chance I could go to prison or get heavily fined and whatsoever. So, I mean... <laughs> That actually, the, the, the report they wrote was absolutely disgusting, absolutely horrific. But obviously, they, they thought that, you know, I was, we'd, with that distress, nobody'd read it. You know, press don't read everything, do you know what I mean? Well, the press didn't even get the report. But I'd read the report and nothing made sense. To, it just did not make sense. How would you mistake a 77 year old woman who had been found two weeks after her death? in a house with a 77, um, with a 37 year old ex-paratrooper who'd been fit, you know, when he died and whatsoever. There was such a big difference in, you know, like, you know, both bodies and stuff. And um, then when I read the documentation, it was clear. It was clear that, you know, that the, the police were just hiding everything. And, and they were doing it by, you know, try, trying to close that, me down by keeping me quiet by this threat of going to prison, this threat of, you know what I mean? So I, I was lucky to, uh, to get a solicitor, um, a new solicitor, who, you know, were taking it on board for me. And now we've got a proceedings, a civil proceedings against the South Yorkshire Police for a botched investigation where we believe that they... Uh, hidden evidence to protect those responsible. And um, that's where we are at the moment. But um, 
We're having difficulty getting the documents off the police again because it's a new set of documents. There won't be any court order on them. Yeah, I think what they're hoping that we'll do is go to court and a new renewed court order will be on the second set of documents. Um, so that's where we are at this present moment in time. But I've, I've read everything and I feel, you know what I mean, it's absolutely horrific and disgusting and they should be ashamed in this country about what's happening. And it's really, really shown me how the criminal justice system works. Do you know what I mean? Uh, what, where we all walk about thinking that things are done correctly, do you know what I mean? They are definitely not. They're definitely not. So that's where, well, you know, we are at this present moment in time. No, I totally agree. I mean, I've been through it myself with my daughter in a civil case and where you've got someone from the establishment in our case it was a Tory donor and putting gagging orders over everybody and stuff like that I know exactly how it feels but I'm you know I'm 100% solidarity with you because I'm not going to shut up either and I'm not going to stop me, you know it's been three and a half years yeah. you just don't stop because you know no I think the good everybody, it's your with, right. yeah I think the it's thing that they right. don't so Oh, sorry. No, can I just go back to yeah, yeah? Can I just go back to do you know like we're on about this policing bill and that lot? Do you know what I mean? What we've not got to forget is the Human Rights Act. Yeah. Now they're trying in every which way possible to get rid of that, whether it being saying oh this terrorist we can't deport because of the Human Rights Act or this because of the Human Rights Act. But in place there's a Human Rights Act, and within that Human Rights Act. There is something for absolutely everybody, and it and it and it it's understandable to us as the ordinary public. You could, you know, if anything happened to you at work, you could go and look at the Human Rights Act. Do you know what I mean? Um, it, you know, there's laws against torture. Yeah, there's right to there's right to express yourself. All those things are in the Human Rights Act, and that's something we've got to fight to keep. Um, which which will which will prevent this kind of you know, this bill that they're going on about. Because I found with this government, they're very much like, very narcissistic. It's all the fear of, the threat of, the threat of, the threat of this. And people tend to think that it's it's law. Do you know what I mean? Like when they say the rules. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's, it's not down as law, but everybody thinks it's rules, so they think it's the law. So it's all these kind of ways, the, the wording that they, that, you know, the way they speak of every, about everything and that lot, that we've really, really got to question and, and, and not kind of automatically be feared, you know, for, for, for what they're saying with words, basically. Yeah, definitely. So it, for your fundraising, are you fundraising for legal costs? Yeah, it, this is to protect me um, because I'm going to take it as far as I you know, can possibly take it. So this is to protect me, you know, being hammered if I were to lose it, which I don't think I will, um, because there's just so much evidence there. But this is to protect me. So I'm just asking people to, do you know what I mean, back me and support me and so that we can take this as far as, you know what I mean, we can possibly take it. Yeah, we'll definitely share that across all social media. I'll tweet it. It's my personal social media, everything as well. So I... <laughs> I wish you all the luck in the world, obviously. You've just got to keep fighting these people. It's just yeah. a nightmare, but thank God black people are blessed with patience because God knows we have to wait so long for so many things. 
I mean, just quickly to touch on um, Sabi, as you mentioned in the beginning, are Asian people affected by police brutality? I definitely know during the, uh, the war on terror, people who are stopped and searched and harassed in the same kind of way. Do you just want to briefly say something about that? Yeah, absolutely. I think. Yeah, no, you're right. Um, I think it is important to remember that there's there's more that unites um, uh, different communities um, that experience racism than than what divides us. So, um, yeah, absolutely. Black uh, Asian people are. Um, uh, if if you look at the stats on stop and search, the uh, it's still you know more. African Caribbean people that are stopped and searched, but the number of Asian people that are being stopped and searched is increasing massively. So stop and search is a big problem for you know all communities um, affected by racism. But also the last you know death in stats, It was um, compared to white people, black people nine times more likely, but Asian people seven times more likely. Exactly. Yeah. So it's not far off. So yeah, that's why it's really important for communities to work together and to unite to actually campaign um, on these issues and also, you know, you know, death in police custody. Um, Asian people, you know, have been killed in police police custody, and Asian people have been murdered in racist attacks. And you know, virtually identical to the Stephen Lawrence case, like Sergeant Singh Shocker in um, uh, Lanarkshire in Scotland. Ricky Reel's mum, you know, she's still, you know, in enormous pain and fighting for justice. So, yeah, the, there might be a variation in stats and that sort of thing. But, you know, all these issues affect, you know, all um, communities. You know, there might be more emphasis on, you know, one thing. Like, if you look at racial stereotypes, like a, a lot of, like, as we've been discussing today, you know, African-Caribbean people are often... Um, uh, uh, stereotyped as being, you know, aggressive, you know, muggers, you know, that that was, you know, a big thing in the 80s, you know, cops used to basically just, you know, um, there was a propaganda campaign that just basically used to justify, you know, um, uh, such, you know, aggressive policing, um, because, you know, black people were considered, you know, aggressive people that were, you know, mugging people. And now, you know, in the last few years, you've had, you know, I guess, since 9-11, so, you know, well, 20, almost 20 years now, exactly, uh, Muslim people being stereotyped as being, you know, potential terrorists, you know, all of them and a, a potential sort of threat to security. So whatever the reason is, you know, it's still, you know, part of the same thing. It's still racism. And so it just illustrates how we have to unite together to, you know, fight, you know, this evil of racism. I agree. I mean, um, the Ricky Real case you just mentioned, it was scarily similar to uh, mm. Richard, I'm sorry, I don't know his last name. It's a Nigerian name, even though my son's Nigerian, he always has to go at me for this. But like, um, but the young boy, Richard, who went missing from home, and then his mum went to the police to say he was missing, and they said, oh, we can't find your son, how can we? And she actually said, I believe, as an African woman, they stereotyped me as being hysterical, they took the way that maybe if, because if I had an English accent, they would have treated me differently. Well, we know that's probably not true, but <laughs> I mean, it's kind of, well, I'm sorry to be, you know, it's not, but I'm not having got her. I'm just saying they just yeah. anything. But 
I do know that stereotype of the African woman over emotional and blah, blah, blah. But it was actually our mutual friend, Dennis Fernando, who said to me, Ava, go and look at this case and go and look at this case of an Asian guy called Ricky Real. And I ended up writing a piece about it saying, oh my God, this is the same thing. Also the bodies being found in water and stuff, you know? Yeah. And there's a lot. And I've seen um, videos of the GRT community. I saw videos of them bursting into GRT community and I saw the, the machine guns and they were lying on the floor and it was just like, you know, it was a dog was running, a dog was running around and they were threatening to shoot it. I was like, my God, this is like what they do to black guys in South London. Like, you know what I mean? So there is, and I think that going forward, we do, we have to really, really unite because it's just the, you can kind of see the way that they're kind of breaking, breaking us all off from each other. And um, yeah, it's just unity definitely going forward. But just in closing, is there anything anybody we didn't touch on that anyone wanted to add? Say about anything? No. <laughs> All right. So I will definitely um, be promoting and sharing your link, Janet, for sure. Thank you. Thank you. Really thank you for coming and speaking to us today because I know how well, painful it is. Us. Yeah, no problem at all. I know how painful it is to have to keep reliving these kind of things all the time. And it is so, so cruel. And it's just, you know, when I see your brother's case and then you think of, you see like Lee Rigby, you know, who's also a, an ex-military man and you see him just, you know, and it, it's just painful. It's really, really painful because you are told to do things to be part of this country and, you know, serving in the, the army and to be a paratrooper as well. Because we used to have a couple of paratroopers in, in the prison service. That's like an elite division. Do you know what I mean? So, you know, and I, I've got a really good friend who used to be in the uh, Marines, a black guy. And so I know what your brother must have had to even go through in his own training to get to the to be a para in the first place and to have such disrespect. It's it's beyond, there's not really many words except to say complete solidarity there. I'm really sorry and lots of love to your family. Um, Ross, thanks for coming on and uh, suggesting actually putting this together and covering Look the case as well. Yeah. Yeah, no problem. That's no problem. Great. You are one of the few white men we've nice allowed in this space. Nice to meet you, Nice to see you after all these years, Janet. Yeah, yeah. That, yeah. I'm going to just it, say goodbye to the audience and then we'll just stay on. I'll just stop the recording. So bye-bye. Um, on the next show, we are going to have Michael Mimsia and Yaya Burt, and we're going to be discussing all things Islamic. Thank you for tuning in.